Section 8 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. First Decade, Chapter 3, The States of Europe, etc., in the 14th Century, Part 1. England and France were, in the 14th century, the two most formidable nations in Europe. Others might be named which surpassed them both in wealth or in population, or an extent of territory, but there were none which combined in an equal degree the several elements of power, or possessed within their own borders such a warlike stock of fighting men. They were, however, very differently circumstanced from the England and France of today, for in the medieval struggles between those two nations, Scotland, as has been already abundantly shown, instead of supplying to the national army, as she does now, the very flower of its soldiery, was, owing to her hostility to England and sympathy to France, her geographical situation and her capabilities for carrying on a harassing warfare, a constant source of weakness and distraction, and one of the most effective and dangerous allies of the French king. Ireland, indeed, furnished occasionally a small contingent of irregular troops to the English armies, but far from being an element of national strength, this unfortunate dependency had become thus early in the history of its connection with England one of the greatest difficulties of the sister island. Bounded on its farther shore by a melancholy and unfrequented ocean, and believed to be the farthest outpost of humanity toward the unknown west, torn by apparently purposeless intestine dissensions, while in a state of chronic revolt against the influences of English civilization, Ireland was an object of constant wonder, perplexity, and apprehensions to the kings and statesmen of the greater island, to which she was then as now by situation and circumstances irrevocably bound. France, in respect of its boundaries and national constituents, was still very much in the same condition as it had been left by Hugh Capet some 350 years before, except that its subdivisions were fewer and each of its fiefs larger and more important. These were now in reality small dominions in themselves, the ancient chiefs of which their counts or dukes had become their true sovereigns, while the kings of France were little more than their feudal overlord and suzerain. Such were the Counts of Flanders, Champagne, and Toulouse, the Duke of Brittany, the Duke of Burgundy, to whom Nivernois owed homage, the Duke of Aquitaine, then also King of England. South of the Pyrenees, the Kingdom of Navarre, though no longer as it had been in the days of Charles the Great and his sons, a portion of western Francia or France, was governed by a French princess, the daughter of Louis X. Three other Christian kingdoms had been formed in the northern province of Spain out of territories wrested from the Almohades, a tribe of Moors, who had come over from Africa in the twelfth century on a kind of Mohammedan crusade, and had subdued nearly the whole of the Spanish peninsula. These were the kingdom of Aragon, founded by James the Conqueror in the latter half of the previous century, and that of Portugal at about the same time, and lastly the great kingdom of Castile, which included the central and northwestern part of the peninsula, and had reached its then dimensions by the annexation of the kingdom of Leon, 
and the acquisition of the great cities of Seville and Cordova under St. Ferdinand III. A great part of the south of Spain, the kingdom of Granada, was still in the hands of the Moors, who, receiving frequent accessions of strength from beyond the Straits of Gibraltar and protected by a good barrier of mountains on their northern border, had hitherto been able to maintain themselves within their contracted limits against the crusading attacks of Christian powers. On the southern shore of the Mediterranean, beginning with the Moorish kingdom of Fez, the whole of the African seaboard was occupied by tribes professing the faith of Islam. In fact, the Mediterranean itself more than once seemed in a fair way to become a Mohammedan lake. For at one time the religion of the Koran prevailed from the Pyrenees, all round by the coasts of Spain, of Africa, of Syria and Asia Minor, to the head of the archipelago, almost encircling the little Christian isle of Cyprus. At another the crescent gleamed from the Straits of Gibraltar to the head of the Adriatic, receding on the western seaboard of Europe as it advanced on its eastern shore. Between Spain and Italy, on the northern shore of the Mediterranean, and bounded by the Rhone on the west, lay Provence, a dependency of the French king of Naples. For the southern portion of the Italian peninsula, the kingdom of Sicily on the mainland was still ruled over by the dynasty of Anjou, who had won it a century before. This kingdom of Sicily, with Naples for its capital, though like the little kingdoms of Corsica and Sardinia, a fief of the popedom, was in extent of territory the most important dominion in Italy, and one of its kings, Robert, who reigned from 1309 to 1343, was a prominent figure in the history of the papal and imperial struggles of his time, and a devoted partisan of the Guelphs, as the friends of the Pope were termed, in opposition to the Ghibellines, the party of the emperor. Its political and moral weight, however, was inferior to that of many of the little principalities and commonwealths in the north of the peninsula, where the separate life of cities had enjoyed a free development in the absence of restrictions on enterprise, the security of the acquisitions of industry, and the education of self-government. The patrimony of the church comprised the finest provinces of central Italy, but during the absence of the popes at Avignon, the greater part of central Italy was a prey to factions and misgovernment, and Rome had ceased to be the Christian metropolis of the world. The papal coffers, however, were replenished by the regular and occasional offerings of the faithful and by the fees paid into the detested but indispensable Curia Romana, as the papal court was called. For in every Christian state of Europe, an appeal lay to that court in all cases involving the canon law. John the Twenty-Second, who died in 1334, left behind him no less a sum than 25 million gold florins, a sum probably equivalent to 50 million of the money of our time. The reigning pope, Benedict Twelfth, had out of his predecessor's accumulations built himself a palace fortress at Avignon in Provence, and the luxurious villas, parks, and gardens of his cardinals spread themselves along the French bank of the river. The popes no longer occupied the commanding position which they had held during the great pontificates of a few years back, but though notoriously under French influence, they kept up their traditional character of international mediators, 
and as no sovereign could afford to dispense with their sanction to his undertakings, they still exercised a widely influential power in the councils of Europe. In the northern portion of Italy and within the semicircle of the Alps, the governments of Lombardy and Tuscany had reached in Edward III's reign a very high pitch of prosperity and power. As Saracenic civilization decayed on the western shores of the Mediterranean and Byzantine civilization decayed at their opposite extremity, the Italian republics in some sort took the place of both, and the Crusades, which weakened and impoverished the rest of Europe, had brought a large accession of wealth, culture, and dominion to the rising commonwealths on the Adriatic and Etruscan seas. They lay, in fact, under the suspicion of lukewarmness in the contests which thrilled all other Christian hearts, and even of an interested sympathy with the resistance of the infidels. Their geographical position was such that the civilized West and the barbarous East sought and found in their shops and warehouses a mart of exchange for their commodities, the choicest woven fabrics in their factories, a secure depository for treasure in their banks, and inexhaustible facilities of transport in their ships. The annual revenues of Florence alone amounted to 300,000 pounds, a far larger sum than England and Ireland yielded to Edward III, or even to the Tudor sovereigns two centuries later. In the southeast of Europe, the Ottoman Turks had overrun the Christian provinces of the Eastern Roman Empire and were spreading to the north and east, overrunning the Sclavonic countries of Servia and Bulgaria and making piratical incursions on the Mediterranean coasts. About the middle of Edward III's reign, they had got a firm footing in Europe, and toward the end of it, Amaroth the Great had established his capital at Adrianople. At Constantinople, with a small district round it and some outlying territories in the Peloponnesus and elsewhere, was all that remained of the wide dominion of the Latin emperors of the East. In the north, beyond the limits of Ottoman conquest, lay the three great Christian kingdoms of the Magyars or Hungarians, the Poles, and the Russians. But the Russians were separated from the two former by the vast territory stretching from the Baltic to the Black Sea of the Lithuanians, who were still heathens, and the last Aryan people in Europe to embrace Christianity. The northern portion of Russia was occupied by the great Republic of Novgorod, extending across the Ural Mountains into Asia. But Russia proper had lain for upwards of 100 years in a state of absolute, though indignant, vassalage to the Khan of Tartary. In the year of Edward III's accession, the first step toward the emancipation of Russia was made by the establishment of the national capital at Moscow. But a century and a half more had passed before the famous Ivan Vasilovitz finally shook off Mogul, that is, Tartar, supremacy. During almost the whole of Edward's reign, continual struggles went on between the Lithuanians, Russians, and Poles, but before the end of it, a really powerful kingdom was established by the union of the crowns of Poland and Hungary under Louis the Great. End of Section 8